Well, good morning, everybody. How's everybody this morning? Hope you all are doing well. Um, I want to do some demographic work here with you. Uh, I, wanted to, I did this with the men yesterday. It was kind of fascinating, and I did it in the first hour. It was even more fascinating for reasons I'll tell you in a second. But let's see how the results go this time. I want to know who in this room was born outside the United States. Okay, put your hand up if you're born outside the United States. Well, look at that. That's a pretty good... I was born in Canada, for example. Where were you born? Cyprus. Wow. And where else? I saw some other hands in the back here. Where else? Just call out the country you were born in. Where? Guam? Vietnam? England? Okay, England. Very good. All right. That's, uh, that's, we, we think those are the foreigners amongst us. Okay, so let's, let's, go, let's go from here. Uh, Okay, now everyone who didn't raise their hand now has to raise their hand, all right? And how many of you were born in the South? Okay, if you're born in the South, put those hands up nice and high. Okay, now how many of you were born in Texas? Keep those hands up, okay, all right? Dallas-Fort Worth area, okay? Keep those hands up. See, it's dwindling. Flower Mound, okay? (laughs) Who was born? No one was born in Flower Mound. Same thing this morning in the first group. We had one guy who's lived in Flower Mound all his life at the men's retreat. Flower Mound is obviously a place where people from a variety of places gather. I mean, it's amazing uh, how many people are not born in Flower Mound. God has called you here to live your life and to represent Him and to be uh, who you are in this place. And most people that you are hanging out with are just as alien and foreign as you are. So uh, uh, it, it's amazing how many people don't come from Flower Mound who are here. And uh, the results have been, I'm here to tell you, this survey has been pretty consistent. I've done it now with three different groups associated with this church. And I think I found two people from Flower Mound from life up to this point in their life. Well, I want to transition and think about, as we think about why God calls us to live where we are and what we're doing about what we're doing, I want to take a look at Jesus and the correct title of the message is From Start to Finish. I'm going to look at two passages in the Gospel of Mark, one at the beginning and one at the end, because I'm committed to the belief that one of the ways to understand and appreciate who Jesus is in His uniqueness is to take a look not just at what He said, but at what He did. And so I'm going to look at two significant events where He says things or does things or claims that God will do things that are important to understanding who He is. And as a backdrop for this, I want to tell you about a class that, uh, that I teach at the seminary. I'm a I'm research professor of New Testament studies at Dallas Seminary, and we've just recently n- uh, launched a concentration, an academic concentration at our school called Jesus Studies. You can come in the seminary in the past. You could come. You could concentrate on Old Testament. You concentrate on New Testament, historical theology, systematic theology, pastoral ministry. But we didn't have a major in Jesus. Imagine that. And so we thought, well, maybe it'd be a good idea to allow students to come and concentrate their study on Jesus, not just what's said in the New Testament, what's said about Him theologically, etc. Well, one of the courses for this new emphasis is called Jesus and the Media. And we study how Jesus is presented in the public square by our media outlets, by our major news organizations, by our cable channels, etc. And we have our students interact with 
and reflect on how Jesus is presented both from an aesthetic point of view, how the production is done, and also from the standpoint of the content of what is offered. Well, we've offered, this is a new program, and, and so two years ago I offered this course uh, as an independent study, Jesus and the Media, and we had a huge sign-up. We had one student sign up. And this student was a media arts student. He was in our audiovisual uh, major in concentration. And so we launched in. And the first thing they have to do in this class is they have to view a presentation of Jesus by a major news organization. And this student chose to take a look at the special that came out about 10 years ago that Peter Jennings did on the historical Jesus. And he watched it. And he has to write a critique and an evaluation of it. And the first time they watch it, usually the students get angry. And so, because of what's often said or suggested in the program. So we have them do that. And we get to let them get the anger out. You know, let them cleanse and purge and vent and all the rest of it. And they do that in paper. And then they have to watch it again. And the second time when they watch it, kind of after they've emotionally adjusted to what they're dealing with, we ask them to say, now put yourself in the position of having to do this yourself. And ask yourself, how would you do this if you had an hour to present Jesus? And remember certain things. You've got to have four minutes going in to introduce it. You've got to have four minutes going out to conclude it. You've got to remember that there are four commercial blocks that take another 12 to 14 minutes away from you. So if you add that all up, your hour has just shrunk to 40 minutes. And you're going to present Jesus Christ to a public audience and you've got 40 minutes, even though you, they think you have an hour. How are you going to do that? And then the last assignment for this course is to produce a piece that could go on the Internet about Jesus that would run anywhere from four to eight minutes. So this student, very thoughtfully, chose to go to an art festival on a Sunday. He wanted to interview people who were not in church. Go to an art festival on a Sunday and to film them, and he asked them two questions. What was Jesus about, and how do you know that's what Jesus was about? Those were the two questions he asked. What was Jesus about, and how do you know that Jesus that that's what Jesus was about? And the answers generally came, they were all over the map. You know, some people had some exposure to church. They knew why Jesus had come. You know, Jesus dies for our sin, the standard answers you might hear in church. But most people said things like, well, Jesus is a great religious teacher. He's a great guide. Um, he he uh, puts us in touch with God. Very generic, general kinds of things. Not surprising. And then when they asked the question, well, how do you know what that, that's what Jesus is about? Those answers were all over the map. Well, I'm not entirely sure. I think it's what I've heard. Or... Uh, another one might be some of them, may, well, the Bible says something about something like that. You know, just kind of generic kind of... And these, these people reflected the people you and I live with. They're our neighbors. They're what, what they think about uh, Jesus, what they think He's about, and why they think He's about that. So what I want to do is I want to look at two key events in Jesus' life that kind of also get our hands around the question, what was Jesus about? And how do I know that's what he was about? And the first passage is in Mark chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles, feel free to follow along with me in Mark chapter 2, verses 1 and following. We're going to go to verse 12 for our first event. This is the first of a series of controversies in the Gospel of Mark that he introduces to kind of tell us what made Jesus controversial and what got him into trouble. 
And the first one is this scene. Now, I need to tell you that I have a great desire one day to produce a Bible that's an audio-visual Bible that comes with both visuals and sounds, sounds you don't normally get with a Bible. And so I want to help you with this scene. Okay, we're in a first century house in somewhere probably in Galilee. And Jesus is teaching and the room's packed. And the first sound you hear is this. Woompa, 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 woompa. The next thing you see are snowflakes coming down from the roof. And the next thing you hear is this. Plunk. Now, I know there weren't hydraulic lifts in the first century, but rope doesn't make any noise, so you've got to cut me some slack, okay? All right? So here's the paralytic. The paralytic, this paralyzed man, dropped by his four friends in front of Jesus. And here he is. And he's sitting there. And as he's sitting there, Jesus says to him, your sins are forgiven. Now, this next part is not in the text, but it's worth thinking about. Okay? When Jesus said to this paralytic, your sins are forgiven, what do you think the paralytic was thinking after Jesus said that to him? You tell me. What do you think? Is that it? Okay, I think he would have probably said something else. Something like, that's not quite why I crashed this party. Okay? Why in the world are you talking to me about forgiveness of sins? It's, he, it's clear I can't walk. I'm on this pallet. I'm here so that you will heal me and I will be able to walk. That's why I came. I'm sure something like that was going through his mind. And what makes this passage so interesting is the way Jesus handles that dilemma. Take a look at this passage with me, if you will. In verse 1 of chapter 2 of Mark, it says, And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered together so that there, were no, there was no longer room for them, not even about the door. And he was preaching the word to them, and they came bringing him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and they made an opening, and they let down the pallet on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, My son, your sins are forgiven and that's where we are in the story. Now, there were other people in the audience. Those other people in the audience were the scribes. And the scribes were thinking to themselves while Jesus said this to the paralytic. Now, I need to tell you a little secret about the Gospels. And it goes like this. Whenever anyone thinks privately in front of Jesus in the Gospels, it's not good for the person doing the thinking. Okay? Just, just, just take it by faith. All right? That whenever the text says they were thinking in front of Jesus, okay, it wasn't good what they were, what, that they were thinking. And in fact, now I tell people the application of this is not to not think in front of Jesus. You can't stop thinking in front of Jesus. All right? So that's not... But the point is, they're thinking. Now, actually, their thinking in this case is actually correct. This is what they were thinking. The text says, Now... Some of the scribes were sitting there questioning their hearts. Why does this man speak thus? It is blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? They're actually correct. Only God has the authority to forgive sins. And so they're asking, how in the world could this human being think that he has the authority to declare that someone's sins are forgiven? Immediately, Jesus, 
perceiving the spirit that they questioned, that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question thus in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or say, Rise up, take up your pallet, and walk. Now, I love this passage because I'm a teacher. And my job on exam questions is to ask questions that separate the men from the boys, okay, and the ladies from the girls. And when we seek to do this, you know, we try on the one hand to ask questions that will surface the A students and questions that will surface the also rants. Now, I could do a demographic test right now and ask how many of you are A students and how many of you are also rants, but I'll save you the confession, all right? But you know how it works. You ask the exam question, it sorts out what you really know, and that's why I love this question, because it is a probing question. Think about it for a second. Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise up, take up your pallet, and walk? And in one sense, it's far easier to say, your sins are forgiven. And the reason is you can't see it. Okay, has anyone in this room seen forgiveness of sins take place? I mean, you actually see this, you know, your sins are forgiven. There they go. Oh, wow, that's cool. Can you do that again? Oh, your sins are forgiven. Oh, wow, did you see it? Look at that. There they go. Okay? No one sees forgiveness of sins. You can't see forgiveness of sins take place. But if I have someone in front of me who can't walk, and I say to them, get up and walk, that you can see. You can test that. In fact, when I say get up and walk, it becomes showtime. And so what Jesus does here is very interesting. He says, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise up, take up your pallet and walk? Now, of course, the really difficult thing to do is to actually forgive sins. You've got to have the authority to be able to do that. But you can't see it, so how can you know? Well, verse 10 is the answer to that problem. Look at what he does. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, take up your pallet, and go home. He brings the two together. He takes something very, very difficult to do that you can see and links it together to something that you cannot see and says you can know that one has taken place by the other because the only way that paralytic gets up and walks and is healed is if God acts. And if God is acting through me, God has given me the authority and acts through me in the midst of making a claim to be able to forgive sins, if God is willing to do that, then that man's walk when he gets up talks. And this is what it says. The Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. The Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. The Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And so he says to that paralytic, get up and walk, take your pallet and walk. And as he walks out, that's the message that comes with his walk. The Son of Man, Jesus, the Son of Man, a figure out of Daniel 7, a figure who rides the clouds up to the Ancient of Days, who's given judgment authority, that person receives authority for the forgiveness of sins. And so it says, I say to you, rise up, take up your pallet and go home. Verse 12, and he rose and immediately took up the pallet and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. 
And Jesus claims a unique authority, and that unique authority is the ability to give life and to forgive sins. And both together are important. Sometimes in the church we only talk about forgiveness of sins, and we forget to talk about the new life that really is at the core of the Gospel. And I tell people, that's strange. Just think about it with me for a second. I understand that here at this church you do baptism in a full-blown way. You dunk people. Okay, you don't know the sprinkling stuff. You know, this kind of oh, little test of test. No, no, no. We, the full, we do the full thing. I mean, you know, swimsuits required. All right? All right, so you do the... Now, think about this. The image of baptism is dead to sin and alive to God. Now, think about it. If Jesus only died for sin. Okay, there you go, into the water. Okay, and there's no second half. So here you are. That's a gospel that only has death for sin talked about. But the gospel is about more than Jesus merely dying for sin. The gospel is about dying to sin so that you can be alive to God. So that He can give you the Spirit of God and energize your life and have you live the way you were designed to live. That's the good news, that you can now live the way you were designed to live. And Jesus came to do that. That's what Jesus was about. And that was unique. There aren't a lot of people going about doing that stuff. And that's what this healing was showing. That you might know that the Son of Man, there's only one Son of Man, has the authority on earth to forgive sins. I say to you, get up and walk in His walk talks. That's at the start of Jesus' ministry. What about at the end? I'm now going to try and do, in about eight minutes, what I spent a year studying. It is cruel. There's the only word for it. Turn with me now to Mark 14. In Mark 14, towards the end of the Gospel, Jesus is in front of the Jewish leadership. They are trying to put together the set of charges that they will take to Pilate that will get Jesus crucified, and they are having trouble. They have tried to work through, I'll be in verse 60, they, are, they have tried to work through the idea that Jesus said He will destroy the temple and they're having trouble getting the witnesses to agree in such a way that they can confidently take these charges to Pilate so that Pilate will say, yes, we should crucify Him. And it's important that they be successful because if they had taken Jesus to Pilate and had done so unsuccessfully, think about the... the Momentum that would create for the Christian movement. You know, the Jewish leadership tried to stop us. They took us to Rome. And Rome looked at it and said, there's nothing threatening here. Of course, that didn't happen. But it could have happened. And so, so they're being careful about putting the charges together they're going to take to Pilate. This isn't really a trial. It's more like a grand jury investigation where they're organizing the charges so that Pilate will eventually make the judgment that only he can make that allows someone to be crucified in Judea in the first century. Well, finally, the high priest decides he's going to take things into his own hands. Verse 60. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, have you no answer to make what it is that these men testify against you? Okay, so Jesus is not responding to any of these charges and Caiaphas hasn't met anyone who normally doesn't respond to charges against him. He's just silent. So he's a little perplexed. And he was silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? Now, I need to tell you a little something about Judaism. 
so you understand this question. He's, he is asking if Jesus basically is the Messiah. More importantly is the way he asked the question. Are you the son of the Blessed One? Blessed One is a roundabout way to refer to God. Okay, He doesn't say, are you the Son of God? He says, are you the Son of the Blessed One? Now, Orthodox Jews, even today, show respect for the name of God by not writing it out. Even today they go, G-D. It's a sign of respect for God to do it that way. And it adds solemnity to the question. Because there's a reminder of who it is we're asking about as Jesus has asked, are you the Son of the Blessed One? Here's His answer. I am. Verse 62, Jesus said, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power coming on the clouds of heaven. That answer is what got Jesus crucified. That answer is technically what got Jesus crucified. Crucified. Look at the reaction. And the high priest tore his garments and said, Why do we still need witnesses? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they condemned him as deserving to death. And they had their charges and they went to Pilate. And the rest, as we say, is history. Now, what is it in that answer that was so offensive? Well, notice a couple of things. First, notice that it says, And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power. Jesus does the same thing in talking around the name of God that the high priest did. Only he mentions God's attribute of power to do it. This is an allusion to Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And then he mentions the coming on the clouds. Well, in the Old Testament, the only folks who ride the clouds... It's kind of like the equivalent of the magic carpet ride, okay? The only people who ride the crowds in the Old Testament is the God of Israel, Yahweh, or descriptions of foreign gods. Gods ride clouds. So he says, I am and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of God coming on the clouds of heaven. So they turn it close. Blasphemy. Here's why. Every week in the synagogue, this is still true today, every week in the synagogue, people who go to synagogue repeat Deuteronomy 6.4. Deuteronomy 6.4 is called the Shema. Okay? And here's what it says. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one God. It's the confession of monotheism. Now, not only that, but in the synagogues, and this is true even today, where they keep the Torah scrolls, because in a synagogue service they'll read out of the Pentateuch in every service on the Sabbath, there usually is the symbol of two tablets on the cover of the box of the container where they keep the Torah scrolls. The two tablets represent the Ten Commandments. And the first commandment is, you shall have no other God before me. No idols. No other gods. So Jesus claims that God is going to vindicate him, give him a seat at the right hand of the Father as the Son of Man, because Jesus Himself is the Son of Man, that you might know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, and Jesus acts to heal the paralytic. So Jesus is the Son of Man. 
You're going to see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power coming on the clouds of heaven. Let me translate this for you. Here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying lots of things. This is some of what He's saying. First, He's saying He's making a prediction. We don't appreciate this about this passage. It's not only a statement, it's a prediction. And the prediction is God's going to vindicate me. Regardless of what you do, regardless of what you're contemplating right now, God is going to vindicate me. Not only that, He's going to vindicate me in such a way that I end up sharing His throne. Take that. Not only that, if you think I'm on trial here, one day I, as the Son of Man, will exercise judgment authority. One day I will judge you. Take that. That's God's vindicated representative. He's saying all that to them. They got it. They didn't believe it. Now, here's the question. Could someone in Judaism actually contemplate the possibility? Could someone in Judaism actually contemplate the possibility of someone being seated next to God? And the answer to that question is it was debated in the first century. I'll give you four texts real quick. None of them are in the Bible. They're all Jewish texts. And they all reflect the debate that's going on in the Jewish community that helps you to see why the Jewish, Jewish leadership reacts as they do. The first text is a text called the Exegoge of Ezekiel, or the Ezekiel the Tragedian, written about 200 years before the time of Christ. In this text, Moses has a dream. And Moses dreams that he is invited to sit on the thrones of heaven. Now, that's important because the only place in the Old Testament where thrones in heaven are mentioned is Daniel 7, and that's the passage where the Son of Man comes to the Ancient of Days to receive judgment authority. Okay, we already talked about the Son of Man. So Moses has this dream, and he asks for an interpretation. And someone interprets it for him. And in the interpretation, he's told that the power that you exercise during the plagues when you speak for God is like God speaking to Pharaoh. In fact, scholars think that this text, this dream, is an interpretation or an exposition of Exodus 7.1 in which something is said to Moses that's surprising. Most people don't even know this is... This is said, even though they read Exodus 7, 1, they just blow by it. And God says to Moses, I will make you, most English translations read this way, I will make you like God to Pharaoh. God says that to Moses as he commissions him to do his work. Now, in fact, the Hebrew is stronger than that. The Hebrew says, I will make you God to Pharaoh. And so the picture is of the authority that Moses has as he carries out the plagues that when he speaks is as good as God speaking. That's the picture. So there are some Jewish people who metaphorically might conceive of a relationship where a person and God were so closely related to one another that they would be linked. That's, that's one text and one view, and that, that, view, that text says yes to that view. Second text is a text called First Enoch. First Enoch is written somewhere between the end of the first century B.C. and the beginning of the first century A.D. It's probably written somewhere in the Galilee area where Jesus ministered. In this text is a figure called the Son of Man. In this text that has a figure called the Son of Man, this Son of Man is preexistent. He sits next to God in heaven and he participates in the final judgment. In fact, he runs the judgment. Okay, the Son of Man figure. In First Enoch, it's an interesting text. Okay, so those are two texts that say, yes, 
we might contemplate someone relating so closely to God that there's a connection between the two. But there are two texts that go a different way. By the way, in First Enoch, Enoch is the Son of Man. Enoch is announced as the Son of Man at the end, and so we understand why did God take Enoch up to heaven? He took Enoch up to heaven so he could install him as Son of Man. That's according to First Enoch, Jewish text. Two other Jewish texts. The third Jewish text I'm going to mention is called Third Enoch. It was written at the end of the first century A.D., a little after the time of Christ, but it tells an interesting story. Metatron, an angel, is giving Enoch a tour of heaven and the judgment to come. And in the midst of this tour, Metatron refers to himself as the lesser Yahweh. Okay? He's the little Yahweh. You know, there's the Whopper and then there's the Whopper Jr. Okay? Alright, so Metatron refers to himself as a lesser Yahweh. Well, after the tour, God calls Metatron in for a talk. When I was a kid, my parents used to call me in for a talk. And what I learned very quickly was is that when my dad said, I want to talk to you, it was not a conversation. Okay? It was a hearing. Okay? I was supposed to sit and listen to what they were going to say to me. Well, God has Metatron come in for one of these talks. And during these talks that he has with Metatron, he tells, he punishes Metatron for having the nerve of suggesting that he might be equated to God. That's a text saying, no way does God share His glory. Another text that says, no way God shares His glory is about Rabbi Akiba. Rabbi Akiba was a rabbi of the second century A.D., again, slightly after the time of Christ. And he contemplated the possibility that when Psalm 110 said, uh, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet, that that could be David. And other rabbis responded to him by saying, how long will you profane the Shekinah? How long will you dishonor the unique glory of God by suggesting that someone can sit on a throne next to God? So those are two no votes in Judaism. Now, the Sanhedrin is made up primarily of Sadducees. Sadducees didn't like adding to the traditions of the Old Testament. They would have been no voters in this dispute. And so when they hear Jesus saying that God is going to vindicate me in such a way that I can sit at His right hand and you can be assured I'm going to be vindicated, they would have gone no way. Now here's the important thing. This text tells us what Jesus was about, and it also tells us what God was about with Jesus. Because the dispute as to whether Jesus is committing blasphemy or whether he is correctly referring to his own exaltation is what this trial scene is all about. And the question is, which side does God vote on? And those are the only two options, by the way. There's no option in the middle, which is our culture's option. Our culture's option is Jesus is a great guy, really terrific teacher, shows the way to God, okay, and, 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 and we can appreciate him at that level. No, that's not an option. The option is he claimed to be vindicated by God, and that's either true or it's not true. God's vote in that dispute is related to the prediction Jesus makes. Because God's vote takes place with the empty tomb. When the tomb goes empty, what Jesus has done with this passage that I've just read to you is tell us where He parked. 
I like to tease people at the seminary. I want to teach a class one day on parkology, the study of where Jesus parked. Okay? Parking places are hard to find, and to get a good one is tough. Okay? And God gave Jesus a very good parking place here after, as a result of the resurrection. And the resurrection not only shows that there's life after death, it not only shows that Jesus did what He claimed to do in dying for sin, it also tells us, Jesus tells us, where God took Him as a result of the resurrection, He ends up at the right hand of the Father. Sharing in the divine authority that He claimed to possess when He said to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven. And offering and giving evidence of the new life He's able to give by the tomb being empty. And God votes. And so, that's what Jesus was about. Jesus was about bringing life through the forgiveness of sins. And how do we know that's what Jesus was about? We know that's what Jesus was about because God vindicated His claims in an empty tomb. And what Jesus was doing was absolutely unique. There's only one Son of Man there was only one who was raised on the third day. And so if we ask, what was Jesus about? He was about the offer of new life. And how do we know that's what Jesus was about? The empty tomb shows that Jesus was vindicated by a God who showed Jesus could give that new life. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this reminder of Your power. That when Jesus said that they would see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the power, that He was referring to the power and the enablement that You not only give that enables life to come out of death, but that You gave to Jesus Christ to have the authority to give that forgiveness and to give that life. And we pray that we might appreciate that, that uniqueness of what and who Jesus is, and that we might rejoice in the goodness and grace that it represents, that we don't have to do anything to earn that life other than to ask for it. And that what we are called to do and to be as a result is to live a life in gratitude that draws on the resources of the new life that you provide and allows us to live in the way you've designed us to live. We ask that you would do that in our lives this day. And if there's anyone who hasn't experienced that new life and knows what it's about, hasn't come to appreciate the uniqueness of Jesus or understand that that's what He's about, we pray that they would come to understand that that's what He was about today. And not only was that that's what He was about today, but that's what He's been about yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And that they, he might, they might draw near to Him and in faith ask for this forgiveness and this new life with Jesus, which Jesus so freely provides. And that they might tell someone that they've done that so that they might receive the encouragement that comes from being part of a believing community. We thank You for Your goodness and grace. We thank You for the truth of Your Word. But above all, we thank You for this provision of forgiveness that we know You have the authority to give because You are so unique. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.